He said, no, 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 no. You went to the Quotron, you punched in BRK, it came up with 1,200, but the Quotron only goes to four decimal points. Berkshire Hathaway was trading for 12,000 a share. So 12,000 times 10 is 120,000. So I said, well, you know, we have a problem because I don't have $120,000. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. I want to thank you for joining that mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, William Cohen. William, are you ready to join the mission? Happy to. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on. And maybe I'll just introduce you to the audience. William is a former Wall Street M&A investment banker for 17 years at Lazard, Frere, and company Merrill Lynch and J.P. Morgan Chase. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of seven nonfiction narratives, including his most recent book called Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of General Electric. William, take a minute and tell us about the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world. Well, it's a tough question to answer, Andrew. In all modesty, you know, I'm not exactly sure some days, but I think the fact that I worked on Wall Street for 17 years after having been an award-winning investigative journalist and now a best-selling author of books and, you know, a lot of other writing for a variety of publications. I think my, you know, mission, in addition to being on this podcast and helping share my worst investment, is to, I think, help people in the real world understand what's going on on Wall Street, how it functions, how it works, you know, translate some of the difficult language and concepts and ideas that people on Wall Street like to use to make it seem like they're important and doing, you know, God's work and actually, you know, cutting through all the gobbledygook of that and, you know, using my knowledge of the way Wall Street works. I wrote a book called, one of my seven books is Why Wall Street Matters, where I actually tried to explain in layman's terms what Wall Street was all about. And I feel like my mission is to do that for people, just, uh, cut through it all, make it easier to understand. It's really not that hard, frankly, mm -hmm. but it is its own language, its own argo, its own, you know, colloquialisms and its own strange behavior. So, it, you know, it sort of takes one to know, know it. And so I pride myself on being able to sort of translate all that craziness for readers in a way that they can you know, enjoy, learn mm -hmm. about what these firms are all about, what goes on on Wall Street, and, you know, how they can, I think, you know, if you understand what better what's going on on Wall Street, you understand how the world works better. Mm. And just for the listeners out there, the books, William's books are at his website, which is williamcohen.com, but they're also on Amazon. 
And the books are Four Friends, Promising Lives, Cut Short, Power Failure, as we mentioned, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon, Why Wall Street Matters, as William just mentioned, The Price of Silence, The Duke Lacrosse Scandal, Wall Street and the Power of the Elite, Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World, House of Cards, A Tales of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street and The Last Tycoons. The Secret History of the Zard Friars. And it's a tale of unrestrained ambition, billion-dollar fortune, Byzantine power struggles, and hidden scandals. And, you know, those titles are fantastic, you know, at getting across the message of what you're trying to get in that book. Are you picking those titles, by the way, or do you work with, like, an editor to do that? Or You know, the titles are usually ones that, you know, I come up with or Sometimes my kids come up with them and my wife, you know, we all sort of sit around and bat around titles. And that's part of the fun of writing a book. You know, the rest of it's often not that much fun because it's a lot of hard work. So, but picking the title can be fun. How long does it take and, you and to And it's write funny because if it's, if, go ahead. If the books are successful, then it just seems like the titles were sort of made to order, you know, like they just totally make sense. If the book it doesn't work that well, you sort of said, well, why is it called that? <laughs> um, but, you know, it depends on the book, like uh, Power Failure, which is the story of the rise and fall of GE, took, you know, almost three years. It was also during the pandemic. So that mm. was a sort of like a time warp. Most books, most of them take about two years. I wrote House of Cards, which is about the collapse of Bear Stearns. I wrote that in nine months mm. and it was published you know, three months later, it was so, you know, it's funny, the publisher of that book, you know, Doubleday, which is part of Random House, correctly wanted to get that book out a year after Bear Stearns collapsed. And Penguin Random House was also the publisher of the GE book. But by the time I finished it, by the time they published it, it was like 15 months later. So publishing's a strange quirky, mysterious kind of uh, business, but, you know, they make it out there and that's the important thing. And what would be advice that you'd give to an aspiring writer, someone who's, you know, wants to do what you've done, you know, writing a bunch of books? Well, first of all, that's a lot of hard work. I mean, it's not like working on a construction site, hard mm -hmm. work. It's not like cleaning out, you know, latrines, but it's, uh, you know, it's hard intellectual work. It takes a long time. I don't have anybody helping me. So I do all the research myself. I do all the interviews myself. I do all the writing myself. So, you know, that's a lot of work. It takes putting your butt in the seat, you know, every day, day after day, you know, so a lot of people think, oh, I'll write a book, you know, it'll be great. But to actually do it, and especially the kind of books that I do, which are, you know, kind of doorstops sometimes, takes a long time and a lot of effort. And honestly, sometimes you can't even believe that you've done it. And, you know, I often say the, you know, a journey, journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, right? So you just mm -hmm. have to sort of day after day, grind through it. And then, right. you know, one day you wake up and it's, and it's done and you can't quite believe it. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it's so admirable. Every time I see any big book, I'm like, that's amazing commitment. That's why books are such a great thing to dig into. Because if it's, you know, if they spend that much time in it, you know, there's something 
valuable about it that they've brought together that doesn't exist in the world. And now it does. One of the things that I realized, you mentioned about investigative journalists and, you know, obviously your job in these books is to investigate and and follow some leads and try to figure things out. But one of the things in, in my, one of my classes I have, which is called Valuation Masterclass, I'm teaching young people how to be a financial analyst. And what I realize now that I explain to them pretty well, which is that being a financial analyst means you're going to, the hardest part is you're going to go down a lot of dead ends where you're going to be working on some idea you have about this is really bad for the profitability of the company or whatever. And then as you dig into it, you find out, nope, that was wrong. And I just spent six hours digging out that data. And the the only redeeming thing you can say is that I've proven that, you know, I've proven that something, you know, wasn't right. I'm just wondering, you know, to what extent are you dealing with dead ends as you're working through a book? Is that a component in the process? I don't necessarily find that I reach dead ends. I mean, I have a, you know, an idea of the story I want to tell, the narrative that I want to focus on. And of course, you know, I'm researching too. So I'm like discovering things along the way and then, you know, making choices about what to include and not to include. I find, you know, sometimes my books get even longer than are acceptable. And so then the editors come along and they say, well, this is really too long. And I say, well, how about we do it in two volumes? And they say, well, you know, you're not Barack Obama. You know, you're not Robert Caro. So, you know, why don't we get it into one book and then one volume? And then, you know, you have to make choices. So there are things that I will have spent a long time researching that, you know, we just have to lose. Mm. And that's, that's annoying. But it's often said that, you know, that's something that I need to know about. Maybe the reader doesn't need to know so much about that or, or when I talk about the book after it's published, it's good that I that I know that I can talk about that. Mm. You know, I can go down that rabbit hole sort of in a conversation about the book right. or about the topic. But maybe oh, yeah, it's like one thing that we can cut out to try to get like my last book about GE was like 650 pages. So, you know, there was stuff that needed to be cut out. But I, I fought for putting things back in. You know, I, I know one of the editors wanted to cut out a story I told about the CEO of GE, Jeff Immelt, going with his daughter and his security guard to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And it was such an incredibly revealing story about, you know, being a CEO and dragging other people along and trying to get your way and things like that. They wanted to cut it out. And I said, absolutely not. So it's, uh, you know, it's in there. And it's, yeah character development and revealing about character generally. And, mm. you know, obviously when you're mountain climbing to one of the highest mountains in the world and you, you know, you're not a mountain climber, then obviously, you know, you're in a stressful situation. And so all, all sorts of interesting things happen. So, interesting. so, so, you know, things get cut out, but then you can, you know, it's ultimately, you know, it's my book. So my name's on it. Mm. And, so if I feel strongly that something needs to be put back in, you know, yeah. they'll probably usually accommodate, you know, until at some point the book is, you know, like so big that then they have to charge like 50 bucks for it. But, you know, if you think about it, I mean, I think this last book cost 
whatever, $35 or something. I mean, how many hours of entertainment can you get reading a book? It's, and it's, it's literally the best bargain out there, even at $35 to have something in your hand that you can read whenever you want. That's the product of somebody's intense focus for two or three years. You know, that's rather incredible, really. It's a great bargain. It's one of the few great bargains. I mean, when it costs $100 now to fill up your car with gas to get a book for 35 bucks, I mean... And for the satisfaction and the knowledge that it brings, you know. Absolutely. Just for the listeners out there, I just want to highlight briefly on the new book, just so that anybody who's interested gets a picture, but I'm just going to go to some of what you have on Amazon here. Perhaps no company reflects American American ingenuity, innovation, and industrial fortunes, as well as the iconic General Electric Company, producing storied leaders and almost every product imaginable. GE built a cult of leadership success that hid cracks in its foundation. In this masterful history, William Cohen, one of America's most eminent financial journalist argues that GE's legacy is both a paragon and a cautionary tale through which to understand American business. Maybe you could just give us a little, one little tidbit that will make everybody think, I got to get this. And I know you've also got it on Audible. So I know I like to, you know, more like narrative types I love to listen to on Audible. So maybe just what would be one or two interesting things from the book that you think people would find fascinating? Oh, I mean, this is uh, a true Sophie's choice situation here. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, you know, look, it's uh, it's a sprawling, you know, tale of a company that was founded in 1892, is responsible for, you know, the electrification of America and the world. You know, Thomas Edison mm-hmm. uh, is part of its DNA. J.P. Morgan, the man, is part of its DNA you know, the light bulb, the jet engine, the x-ray machine, you know, appliances that we take for granted, you know, once it owned, you know, RCA, it owned NBC, you know, so it was truly one of the most innovative and iconic companies of the 20th century. And when Jack Welch left, who was, of course, the most admired CEO in America, when he left, you know, in September of 2001, basically GE was the most respected, most valuable company on the face of the earth. So, I mean, it's sort of like a combination of, you know, Microsoft, Google, Apple, you know, kind of rolled up into one. And so a company that's that admired and iconic, you know, how that all sort of unraveled so is a fascinating story. And so not only is the story great of how it became such an incredible company and the people involved that made that happen, but the unraveling and the mistakes that were made, you know, between 2001 and today, you know, are of, you know, really a cautionary tale and Mm. something that, I mean, you know, once upon a time, you know, GE's legendary success was standard curriculum material at, you know, the best business schools, I find it 
somewhat ironic that, you know, Harvard Business School, which must have done 10 different 20 cases or whatever on GE on the way up, doesn't seem to have any cases that I'm aware of, of GE on the way down. And that's really, you know, frankly, you know, that's where the learning comes in is, you know, yes, you can learn on on the way up, but to learn sort of the mistakes to avoid so that you don't become, you know, it'd be like if suddenly Apple became an irrelevant company after being worth $3 trillion. I mean, you really scratch your head and say, you know, what the heck happened here? And you'd want, you know, people would want to know why. And so that's the way I felt about GE. I wanted to know what the hell happened, which is really sort of my approach to every one of my books is mm. something happened. What the hell happened? What the hell happened? Like, <laughs> you know, like there's a dead body on the ground. How'd it get there? Aren't there any questions? Yeah. Does you know, anybody see this question? Something happened here. What the hell happened? And if nobody's going to answer that question, then I'm going to take a blank sheet of paper and I'm going to answer that question. Yeah. And for young people these days, you know, I graduated in 1989 from university and GE already was, you know, case studies, as you said. And, you know, we were looking at all that. And I was a young, aspiring business and finance guy. And Jack Welch was everything in some ways. Like he really, and he was tough and all that. But I had a conflicting situation in that when I was working for Pepsi many years ago in 19, 1990, let's say, I went to a seminar with this guy right here. And his name is Dr. Deming. And mm. Dr. Deming was talking just the opposite of what Jack Welch was saying, which was rank them ABC and get rid of the C's. And that was Jack Welch. One of the things that I remember of what he was doing and, you know, how he was driving the organization, which to some of us at times really made sense, you know, get tough, get rid of the, but Dr. Deming taught a whole different way of thinking that there's natural variation and I'm trying to understand that. And if you just rank and rate and reward and punish, you're going to end up never going to end up with the best outcome, but that didn't make sense because it seemed like Jack Welch was getting the best outcome, but it feels to me now like he was riding a team of horses and whipping them so hard. He won the race, but the horses just collapsed at the end. But I don't know how you would, you know, summarize, like, what was his, the downfall? Well, the downfall didn't really occur under him. It, came, yep. it occurred under his successor. Now, his successor would say that Jack sort of set me up to fail, you know, which, of course, is something that you would say if things fell apart mm. under your watch. I think, you know, I would, I mean, I think, you know, intuitively your point is a good one. Did, you know, he whipped the horses so hard that they won the race, but then collapsed at the end and were spent. You know, what I found actually was that, yes, Jack pushed hard, he pushed people hard and got more out of them than they even thought was possible for them. And to a man, the people I interviewed who worked for him and who he did drive hard, you know, loved him. Hmm. And so therefore, I'm not sure the analogy fully works right. with, you know, the horses, because at the end, the horses, you know, were still eaten out of the palm of his hand. 
you know, and I got to, you know, spend many hours with Jack before he died. And he mm. died in March of 2020, you know, right before the pandemic. And his funeral was at St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue in New York. And then literally that was the last thing. And then and then the world shut down, which was sort of ironic, too. But but <laughs> the people who worked for Jack really loved Jack. And he drove them hard, but he also rewarded them well. And he taught them a lot, and they still talk about him. I mean, yeah. it's it's remarkable, and it's really it's an amazing story. And you know, the reception to the book has kind of surprised me that how, how positive people have felt about it when they read it. So that's very gratifying. Well, I just bought it on Audible, and I want to challenge all of the listeners to pick that one or any other one that that turns you on. And I'm looking forward to listening to it because it was a story of my era. So I appreciate that and the time that you spent on that. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. So this is a, a variation of a theme, to be honest. I think you'll appreciate this. So when I was working at, at Lazard, my first job, I had been, I'd gone to a Columbia Journalism School and I was a journalist. And then my father thought that I should go back and get my MBA and didn't understand why I was a journalist or a writer. And so I, I did go back and get my MBA because I wanted to get a, a job at the Wall Street Journal, which never happened. They kept rejecting me. And so after I got my MBA from Columbia, I my first job was at GE Capital. So I did have that two years at GE Capital. And my office mate there was a guy named John Flannery, who became the CEO of GE after Jeff Immelt. So by some work wow. in the matrix, you know, this guy I started with at GE Capital stayed and became the CEO. And then, but I left and I went to Lazard and, you know, John and I used to talk about investment ideas a lot. And so, you know, we both sort of became as one did in that time frame, quite taken with Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. So when I got to Lazard, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to buy some Berkshire Hathaway stock. And this was 1990. And in 1990 at Lazard, there was um, what they used to call a Quotron machine. I'm sure you know <laughs> what a Quotron machine is. Oh, yeah. not, not many people do know what a Quotron machine anymore is, but mm. it was a machine that would, you know, there was like one on each floor and you'd go to it and you'd punch in a ticker symbol and you get a real close to a real time, like 20 minute delay or whatever stock price. So you'd push in the stock symbol and you'd get a stock price. So so if you worked at Lazard and I was worked at Lazard in New York and it, you wanted to buy a stock, you had to like call down to the trading floor such as it was. It was you know most people sort of envision these huge trading floors that are in movies and big firms do have those huge trading floors but Lazard had like one guy on a desk who was their equity trader, you know, because Lazard was an M&A advisory firm. So we didn't really, we pretended to have like a capital markets business. And so 
I called down and I said, I want to buy, you know, I'd gone to the Quotron and I put in BRK, which was the symbol for, and at that time there was only the A shares. There weren't the B shares. And I pushed in BRK and up came a price of $1,200. And at that time, I don't think there was another stock trading, you know, at $1,200. And so I called down to the trader and I said, I want to buy 10 shares of Berkshire Hathaway. And he said at the market, and I said, yes. And so I'm figuring, okay, 1,200 times 10, that's $12,000. And I was a first year associate. I didn't have much money. I had a little bit more than I, when I had been a newspaper reporter getting paid 13,000 a year, but I wasn't exactly, you know, rolling in it, but I, I figured I had 12,000 extra dollars mm. to invest in Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway shares. And so he said, okay, you know, I'll call you when the trade's done. So like 20 minutes later, he calls me up back and he says, okay, we're done. How do you want to pay for it? And I said, I'll write you a check. He said, okay, that'll be And I said, (laughs) what? You've overpaid. What are you talking about? I wanted 10 shares. You know, I went to the Quotron machine and I put in BRK and it came up 1,200. 10 times 1,200 is 12,000, not 120,000. What's going on here? I don't have $120,000. He said, no, 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 no. You went to the Quotron. You punched in BRK. It came up with 1,200, but the Quotron only goes to four decimal points. Berkshire Hathaway was trading for 12,000 a share back then. So 12,000 times 10 is 120,000. So I said, what are you talking about? It said 1,200. No, no, but it's 12,000. I said, well, you know, we have a problem because I don't have $120,000. You said, well, what do you want to do? (laughs) and i said well this was really painful i said well i'll keep two okay i'll keep two so that's twenty four thousand dollars and you know you can sell the other eight back Mm. into the market so he sold the other eight back into the market i kept the two that i paid twenty four thousand dollars for ps now 33 years later the Berkshire Hathaway A stock is trading for something like $540,000 a share. So those two shares are now worth, you know, over a million dollars. And I only paid 24000 for them, which is nice. But I also let go eight shares that were worth now more than $4 million. So mm. I don't know. That qualifies as my worst trade ever <laughs> I, I could have had all 10 and they'd be worth you know 5.4 million dollars now but instead i let eight of them go i had to i didn't have the money to pay for them yeah. i mean i suppose i could have margined them some way or another but i'm not a big believer in yep. bulking up on debt so so what did you learn you from go. that lesson that's my story oh i don't know i mean it's just a great story that I like yep. to tell. I don't know what I what I learned is watch uh, your decimals. 
Well, I mean, I, it was a, a fluke because yeah. I didn't even know. I mean, I guess I should have looked in the newspaper or something back when they used to put the stock tables in the newspaper. Or yeah. I should have, you know, I should have scraped together the 120000 any way I could because, you know, that clearly was an amazing investment. Yeah. A couple of things I was just looking at, $120,000 invested in in Berkshire Hathaway in 1990, the exact performance is that would have been worth $7.4 million today, which would have been mm. about a 13% cumulative average growth rate, which is actually about a little bit above the overall stock market. Buffett hasn't done that great over the last 20 years or so. But if you go back to 1990, you get some good outperformance. One of the things that, that this is a typical example of looking back and, you know, hindsight bias, because also, there's thousands of stocks, you know, in the world and in in America. And if if any of the other ones that you would have made a mistake uh, and could, bought, right, and you bought. know, and then said, "Oh, I guess sure. I I've ordered 120. I'm going to borrow money from my family and friends, and I'm going to top it up because I made the order." But here it was. This well, one. here here at least I had them in my, <laughs> I wouldn't say hand, but I had them in my account, and I had to make a split second decision about how to you know, rectify this rather troubling situation I found myself in. Mm, mm. Uh, yeah, of course, that's now just... I would have kept them, but, you know, back then. Yeah, of course, you're right. I mean, if I had tomorrow's Wall Street Journal today, then, you know, I'd never have to work again in my life. Yeah, hindsight bias is really a challenge. I have a friend of mine that had a, a contract with a company here in Thailand, and if such and such happened, the stock was going to list on the stock market, he would get shares at a really low price. And the stock eventually, after all this work went on, they were getting ready to list it. And the IPO price was much higher than the family thought it was going to be. And so they went to my friend and said, well, we're not going to give you your shares. And he said, why? And he said, well, if we had known that it was going to be that high of an IPO price, we would have never have given you them. <laughs> well, of course, that's the whole point of a contract. And luckily, my friend was able to get his pay out oh, of that by fighting back. But the okay, point is, is good. that if we had known. <laughs> yeah, if we had known. Right. But we never know. So that's uh so let me ask you, what's a, a resource that you use or you have or a resource of your own that you'd recommend for our audience? Well, I mean, obviously, I recommend my books because mm. I think they're a great romp through uh, really important events on Wall Street and really important companies on Wall Street. Can you give a little tip as to why Wall Street matters? Just because I think that book is oh. fascinating for people who don't really have any background, but probably need to know why it matters. Maybe just a little well, tidbit on that. It's funny. I, I wrote that book after the 2008 financial crisis because... The favorite thing of American politicians at that time was beating down Wall Street for their own political gain. And I thought people had really lost sight of the good things that Wall Street did and continues to do. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's excess and people behave badly and there probably wasn't enough regulation at that time. You know, there are a lot of ways to make Wall Street better. And that's what this book also talks about. But you know, I needed, I felt I need, and by the way, this is by far my shortest book, maybe because Wall Street doesn't matter in that many ways, but, you know, it's sort of like a primer for mm. people. And I thought, you know, 
if you get to be a certain age in life, you probably don't understand how Wall Street really works, but you also mm. are probably afraid to ask anybody or admit that you don't know how it really works. Right. So I decided this was a, to write this book for people who everything they wanted to know about how Wall Street works, but they were afraid to ask how things work. And, you know, obviously, Wall Street is essentially the left ventricle of capitalism. And so given that, you know, our whole world is now a capitalist world, you know, even the former sort of uh, communist sort of socialist regimes are now capitalist as well or predominantly. And so how capital markets work, how capital is raised, why it's raised, what it's for, how it's done. I mean, the miracle, frankly, of of taking a company public and separating the owners from the management. You know, obviously, once upon a time, every company was owned by its founding family. But, it, you know, like 100 plus years ago, it started separating, you know, the founders from managers and the shareholders and the guts, the courage to do that. If you think about it, is is quite a piece of alchemy, and you know to be able then to sell company shares to people who don't even work at a company, and think that that's going to be okay and a safe choice. I mean, it's really it's sort of like the people who ate those first mushrooms. You know, talk about guts mm. to eat mushrooms when you didn't know whether you're going to get poisoned or not. You know, that's sort of what. It was like, you know, that first leap of separating founders from managers from shareholders. Anyway, you know, the history of Wall Street is rather quite amazing, I think. So. It's the center of capitalism there. And that book, ladies and gentlemen, is on Audible also. And that's about a four hour book. So it is, you know, easily digestible in a weekend or so. And yes, I remember my first boss, when I became a sell-side analyst, he said, we are on the cutting edge of capitalism. And I just love that because he made me think about, you know, ultimately capital needs to flow to projects that are profitable. And what Wall Street's doing is trying to facilitate that. And it reminds me of a book that I read called Hidden in Plain Sight by a guy named Peter Wallison. And he talked about the origin of the mortgage crisis in 2008 and how the politics behind Bush and then later Clinton trying to drive home ownership pushed Fannie Mae and yes. Freddie Mac to it's get true. these huge portfolios of bad performing, you know, of low performing assets that eventually ultimately because they couldn't issue, you know, they, they weren't issuing mortgages. It had to be funneled through the banks and that was a fascinating read also about, you know, everything gets blamed on Wall Street. But I would say that was something that kind of woke me up. So interesting. In my book, House of Cards, which is about the collapse of Bear Stearns, which, of course, was the canary in the coal mine of the 2008 financial crisis, I talk a lot about what, you know, Peter talks about and mm. the role of the government and, you know, the the laws that require banks to make loans, mortgages available to disadvantaged people, which is, you know, well-intentioned, but then those loans get, you know, packaged up into mortgage-backed securities. And a big part of the reason that the crisis occurred, you know, had its origins in part, 
not in large part, but in part in this you know, so-called Community Reinvestment Act, which required banks to make those mortgages available. And, you know, it'd be one thing if they were just sort of kept at the banks in their communities, but they were all hoovered up mm. into mortgage-backed securities. And essentially, they thought they were distributing the risk, but they were really sending the risk all around the world. Mm. So... Well, it was a oh. it was a masterstroke from a political perspective because everybody involved in that knew that bringing on lower quality loans had a cost, and instead of putting that cost up front, they were able to package it in a way that you know politicians could kind of put the blame on on Wall Street. So I'm looking forward to that one. And for all the listeners and viewers out there, just make sure go to the show notes, and I'll have links to all of that. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I'm, I'm, I've embarked on my new book. I, you know, have weekly writing assignments for Puck, which is my digital media company that I was co-founder of, you know, so my weeks are, uh, my goals are, you know, continually often the same is just to keep putting my butt in the chair and writing day in, day out sometimes on my books, sometimes on my articles, sometimes on what I have to do for Puck, sometimes for the New York Times or the Financial Times or the Washington Post or whatever. And, you know, just sort of enjoy my life mm. too. You know, where wherever there's uh, an internet connection, you know, I, I can work. So that's beautiful. Yeah. And whether it's, you know, in Nantucket or France or New York City or- Bangkok, Thailand. Wherever or Bangkok, Thailand, or, yes, you know, wherever. Exactly. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, William, I want to thank you again for joining the mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience. You know, enjoy your life as much as you can. No one gets out alive. <laughs> as a friend of mine said, the Grim Reaper is undefeated. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.